You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. The format of the group is that we're going through the uh, Manual of Insight, which is a new uh, translation of Mahasi Sedar's um, Manual of Insight. Um, so uh, tonight's topic is uh, the conclusion to the first chapter of the book, which is uh, purific- purification of conduct. Um, well, actually, it's not the end of the chapter. It's the end of the subchapter, purifi- purification of conduct for laity. Um, to understand um, what we're really talking about is uh, what what is it that you have to do? Are there any prerequisites to beginning your meditation practice? And if so, what might those be? Um, If you were a monastic, observing the monastic precepts would be the beginning of purification. And then the second area would be pursuing a pure livelihood. The third would be wisely using the requisites. And the fourth would be restraining the senses. This is the, what we talk about in terms of purifying conduct. We're householders, and so we don't need to um, uh, observe the monastic precepts, but we do uh, often talk about householders' precepts. Um, and we sometimes talk about them as five precepts, undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through uh, killing uh, undertake undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through taking what is not freely given understand uh, undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through sexual conduct undertake the practice to refrain from uh, causing harm through speech and to uh, undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through the imbibing of uh, intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. Around here, I would add process addiction to that in our contemporary way of understanding that. Uh, Sometimes we talk about the eight precepts, and uh, Mahasi often refers to the eight precepts plus Right livelihood. Let's see what I have. So, the sixth precept is to undertake the precept from to refrain from eating at the forbidden time, i.e., afternoon. So, monastics are prohibited from eating afternoon, and some lay people also take this precept. So the there would be a meal early, say, if you're on retreat and have taken eight precepts, the meal is at six, say, and then uh, 
the main meal of the day would be at 11 and then in the afternoon you'd have juice or some tea something like that um, the seventh precept I undertake the precept to refrain from dancing from singing from music from going to see entertainments from wearing garlands using perfumes and beautifying the body with cosmetics when I was in Burma I hired a guide to take me around his name was Sanyu and we were out at a restaurant in Bago which is a a town outside of Yangon, the capital, and uh, he said uh, that uh, he'd been a monastic twice, but he'd gotten kicked out of the monastery twice. And one of the times he got kicked out was for violating the seventh precept. He said that he loved pop music, and he loved to dance, and so that he would sneak out of the monastery and go dancing. <laughs> <laughs> But it was pretty easy to spot. <laughs> uh, and then the eighth one is I had to take the precept to refrain from lying on a higher, luxurious sleeping place. And in Burma, that's been translated into an inch high foam mattress which is pretty uncomfortable um, so eight precepts and right livelihood right livelihood uh, is the work we do in order to live to be right in the full sense uh, of the word a livelihood would have to provide one with its your basic needs which is the requisites uh, it would have to be in accordance with the ethical principles and it would have to make uh, a useful and hopefully beneficial, beneficial contribution to society. So that would be right livelihood. Examples of wrong livelihood, dealing in weapons, human beings, slavery, uh, people smuggling, prostitution, uh, living off in income generated by that, uh, trade in flesh, uh, that would be animal flesh, manufacturing or selling alcohol or poisons. Um, so, the requisites uh, are the things that are required for survival. So, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine are considered the requisites. <coughs> and how you get the requisites is considered right livelihood. How do you get those things? Adding in addition to that, that they should be. Uh, in, in some way the, the work that you do to get them should benefit society so that you could begin to examine uh, how you live based on that um, in our culture it, it, it can be difficult maybe to organize your life in that way since we don't necessarily reward that the most sometimes the unethical side seems to be highly rewarded if you look at us uh, as a country, we couldn't really be considered ethical in the sense that the, 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 the great majority, more than half of the, the money that we collect in taxes are spent on uh, war. 
it's very hard for me to make sense out of that being an ethical choice for us all as a society and since we all participate in that or uh, those of us who are in our majority and, and have the uh, legal means to vote are in some sense endorsing this or uh, pay taxes or if you pay taxes so <clears throat> Tonight, in particular, I wanted to talk about um, what kind of practice should you do based on what kind of uh, uh, spiritual intelligence you have. I, in some sense, find this to be one of those um, uh, I find it humorous myself, but um, (laughs) the concept of uh, spiritual intelligence did you have that thought when you woke up I'm feeling spiritually intelligent today (laughs) emotionally intelligent my sports intelligence is really good today (laughs) I like to be lighthearted about it maybe because I, I, I feel that I'm in the most disadvantaged group when it comes to these kinds of personalities. Um, Among uh, these immoral lay people who have been enlightened, Ariya the thief and Sarah Kani were clearly not yet in their final lives. Here's another question for you. Do you think you're in your final life or do you think that you have many more lives to go before you reach enlightenment? How do you relate to this traditional, uh, the traditional concepts of Buddhism? We're in a Buddhist meditation center. Um, we're, we talk about often a Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist way of dealing with things, of doing things, uh, but it's so uh, filtered through the Western mind that often these kinds of details are left out. Do you think that you're in your last life, or do you think that you have more to go? Or have you ever even considered that question? But this is one of the fundamental things in Buddhism. As we've been talking about this, um, there are certain things that you need to believe according to the the canon of, uh, of Buddhism or you won't be able to be enlightened because they block enlightenment. One of the things that you need to believe is in uh, reincarnation. And one of the things that you need to believe in is uh, the moral aspect of karma. But it's so ordinary in the West to encounter people like me or other people that don't really have that uh, as a guiding belief in it. I, I um, it isn't that I don't, it isn't that I, my uh, intellect tells me that that can't be. Uh, I don't guide myself in that way. But I don't have a felt sense of the possibility of it. And I know uh, a couple of people in this room that do have that felt sense of the possibility of it. So I, I uh, tend to be open Uh, about the question. Um, 
do you think that uh, when you take an action it comes into the world as either good or evil and do you think that uh, because it comes into the world as good or evil what will follow it is good or evil that's karma do you think that uh, based on the actions that you take you're reincarnated in a in a higher realm, the same realm, or a, a lesser realm? Or have you not uh, considered that? So, there are three types of people. Some say there are three men uh, who, uh, who are persons of quick understanding, or persons who through elaboration, in other words, persons with exceptionally quick and discerning spiritual faculties and this is why they were able to become stream enters without purifying their morality in advance so the question is based on your spiritual intelligence how quickly can you become enlightened whether or not as a householder you purify your morality when you came in uh, to practice meditation did you consider that there was this moral underpinning, this ethical under, underpinning to the practice. Um, if you come in, say, through mindfulness, there isn't that, really. It's, that part has all been clipped. I often teach this by saying, in order for this path really to work, in order for you to be able to quiet the mind and, and do the deep introspection that meditation often calls for you need to have a quiet mind and if you live in a way that makes you fearful of the consequences it's very difficult to quiet the mind if you make a decision to be a good person which is how i like to describe it then in some sense what you do is renounce all of those activities that would make the mind restless or frightened of retaliation but you don't have to actually do anything overtly in the world for the mind to be afraid of retaliation. You simply have to think it. The part of the mind that engages in fantasy doesn't really distinguish between actions that are taken in the world and actions that are taken in the mind. And so if you're aggressive and harmful in the way that you think or uh, fantasize, uh, which in our culture is, is pretty hard to get away from, you go uh, practically to any movie and people are being digitally slaughtered <laughs> in graphic close-up and then do you come out of the theater and do you feel elation that maybe you felt in the moment or are you afraid when you go into the parking lot that somebody will attack you which is the process of what happens when you engage in, in that kind of thinking um, can you uh, quiet the mind and still engage in, in harmful activity? That would be a question. I noticed for myself that it was very much easier to abandon uh, even the thinking about it in a way. We're all conditioned, so we'll, we all have to emotionally regulate. There's really no choice about that. Uh, there's no choice about emotionally regulating. There is a choice about how you do it 
But most of us simply rely on our conditioning. We think thoughts that generate feelings that bring us in and out of balance. Uh, often, uh, in our culture anyway, because it's so oriented around the individual, we often have a, a judging mind that treats uh, ourselves harshly, unkindly. And that comes not because the evaluation is true, um, but because that's how our caregivers did it and they instructed us in how to do it. And because it happened so early, we never really questioned the validity of self-attack as a means of uh, emotional regulation. But most of the time, if you were to actually say out loud some of the things you use to criticize yourself, you wouldn't be able to get anyone else to endorse them. They would be puzzled that you would think that about yourself since they don't find that to be the case at all. So we often, are, we often keep that in the background and are unwilling to share it with other people so that we could go through a process of normalizing that. So there are three, thought to be three types of persons um, of varying degrees of spiritual intelligence. Um, one person capable of quick understanding one person who merely needs a little bit of elaboration, and one person who needs to be guided. What kind of person is a person to be guided? Is it a person who gradually gains a clear understanding of the Dharma by learning, discussing, applying wise attention, and associating with good companions? Such a person is a person to be guided. This passage explains that a person to be guided attains path and fruition by learning to practice meditation, asking about what is not clear with regard to instructions, properly practicing by paying wise attention and approaching a teacher when necessary to clear up any doubts and to arouse energy, faith, and enthusiasm. Note that nowhere is it mentioned that one must purify one's morality in advance, another teaching on this topic. Um, as householders, we can then simply begin the practice of meditation, come to the center, begin the practice of meditation, and at the same time begin the process of uh, purification of one's conduct in the world. Um, in, in some sense, this is not necessarily a feature that's afforded to monastics who have to undergo the process of purification first, and the different ways that you go about purification uh, uh, are by adopting these four uh, uh, categories that we talked about, the monastic code, requisites, guarding senses. I was talking about this the other day. It doesn't matter what the list is. I can remember all of them except one. Mm -hmm. And it won't even be the same one. Pursuing a pure livelihood. What do you think about the livelihood that you have? Do you think it's a, a, a good livelihood? Or do you think it's a harming livelihood? And what would it take to, to 
shift it so that you you could have a livelihood that was actually supportive of you that that met the cr- criteria of uh, wise livelihood. Insight based on concentration is suitable for a person of quick understanding. Concentration based on insight is suitable for a person to be guided. Alternating concentration and insight is suitable for a person who understands through elaboration. Training in wisdom is suitable for a person of quick understanding. Training in concentration and wisdom are both suitable for a person who understands through elaboration. Training in morality, concentration, and wisdom are all suitable for a person to be guided. Do you have a sense of your category? Upon hearing one line of a sutta, did you become enlightened? (laughs) 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 Having heard one line of one sutta with a little elaboration, did, did you become enlightened? Are there such people? Um, you often hear uh, in the, in the stories, uh, in the commentaries, the descriptions of people who, on hearing one line, were instantly enlightened. Um, I remember my uh, teacher Shinzen talking about uh, his first year in a monastery in, in Japan. How every day he white knuckled, just to prevent white knuckled sitting through the routine of the monastery, just to keep himself from running out the door screaming. Um, and some uh, salary man came in. Salary man, do you know the term? is a, It's a derogatory translation of a derogatory Japanese term which refers to a man who works in middle management in some giant corporation. It's typically depicted as, you know, khakis up above the waist, <laughs> tightly belted a shirt with two pockets with rubber Ink, uh, pen protectors. <laughs> he said that a salary man came into the monastery, an accountant, and that in six weeks went from never having meditated to being a stream enterer. And that it actually nearly threw him over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> He was overcome with envy. (laughs) And then there's a story that I think of uh, Joseph Goldstein telling about all of the Western PhDs that would go to this monastery in Burma and they would toil and toil sitting on the cushion and then these uh, farmers would come in or the wives of farmers would come in and they would sit for a few weeks and they'd get stream entry and then go home said that uh, he uh, asked the Seidao, how can these people just come in and sit and, and get enlightened? And we've been here for months and months. And the Seidao said, well, uh, they're meditating. You're sitting here thinking. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that one. So, 
the two reasons people fail to attain path knowledge and fruition knowledge. Everybody know what path knowledge and fruition knowledge is? Path knowledge? Path knowledge. P-A-T-H. You know, you take the path from New York to New Jersey. Um, So in Theravada Buddhism, there's a a four-path model of enlightenment which reflects the eradication of the ten fetters. The first one is called stream-enterer. And stream-enterers are thought to be reincarnated seven times. And then the second path uh, is called a once-returner, and they're thought to be reincarnated one more time. And then the third path is the non-returner, and they're not reincarnated. So you would know if you were in the third path of enlightenment that this would be your last lifetime. And then there's Arahat, which is uh, the fourth path, also a non-returner. The first three uh, fetters are eradicated in the stream-enterer. That would be the eradication of the belief in spiritual ritual leading to enlightenment. You could elaborate that it also uh, um, means that a belief in God and a belief in in hell is also eradicated. Um, In the second path, the the third and fourth, the fourth and fifth uh, fetters are weakened but not eliminated, and that's craving and aversion. In the third path craving and aversion are eliminated, eradicated. And then in the fourth path, the remaining five fetters are eliminated, and that would be uh, restlessness and agitation, sloth and torpor, the craving for existence, the craving for non-existence and conceit. Each time you go through the, the, the 16 stages of insight in order to do this, and path knowledge and fruition knowledge are two of these stages. Fruition knowledge means that you know that you've gone into cessation, or nirota is another word for cessation, and it's the cessation of awareness that we're talking about. So awareness is the part of the mind that knows what the body-mind is doing, and it's a very neutral place. Um, You have the capacity to sense something, you have the object that can be sensed when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises and awareness knows it. When the object that can be sensed is no longer in contact with the capacity to sense it, then the consciousness of that sensing experience ends and awareness knows that. So awareness is almost always there, whereas the individual sensing experiences come and go. And awareness knows that. But fruition is the cessation of awareness. So there's no recognition of of any conscious experience. So there's no seeing, there's no hearing, there's no tasting, there's no smelling, there's no touching, there's no thinking. So 
Path knowledge uh, is different from that. Fruition knowledge would be to know that you've had the experience of cessation and that you've returned from it. <coughs> Path knowledge would indicate the uh, knowledge that you've attained an additional path or you have not attained additional, an additional path based on uh, the experience of fruition. Uh, and if you uh, talk to people who've had these experiences, what you find is that there tends to be two directions that people come out of uh, their uh, first uh, big experience of fruition. And one uh, direction is this intense experience of, of bliss. And the other is a cycling through uh, fruition experiences. And that's why that there's this distinction between fruition knowledge and path knowledge. That if you come out of the initial uh, stream entry experience and you're one of the people that is constantly dipping into uh, cessation, then you know as you come out each time whether or not you've taken an additional path or not. Whereas if you come out and uh, end up in the, in the bliss side of things, uh, you don't have these frequent experiences of cessation. So the path knowledge, I guess, is, an, is then uh, not something that you're engaged in as frequently as you would be. And this is a, the Theravada map. There's a lot of different maps out there. The Zen map doesn't do this at all. The Zen map, oh, there's a lot of stages that you could map onto the, the Theravada map, but they don't call enlightenment enlightenment until you reach the Arahant stage. Anyway. Two reasons that people fail to attain path knowledge and fruition knowledge. The two reasons that people fail to attain path knowledge and fruition knowledge in this life are bad companionship and insufficient practice or instruction. How many of us have enjoyed the company of a bad companion? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that the consequence of that was no enlightenment for you? <laughs> what then is a bad companion in a Buddhist sense, right? So a bad companion in a Buddhist sense would be somebody who uh, helped you or talked you into or didn't prevent you from engaging in, in one of the kinds of conduct for which there is no return in this life. Um, let's see if I can find the list quickly. Well, that would be a horrible companion. What? That would be a horrible companion. A bad companion. So there are five spiritual obstacles. Mm -hmm. One is called the karmic obstacles, and this refers to five types of fatal misconduct. So if you engage in these conducts, um, and I'm a little light-hearted, but when, when I read the list, I, I, I can understand how you might find yourself in this position. Um, killing one's own mother, killing one's own father, killing an arahat, injuring the Buddha, and disrupting the unity of the monastic community are the five uh, karmic obstacles that cannot be overcome in this life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they died of natural causes. Oh 
I could still be liberated. I'm wrong views. So defilement obstacles. There are three types of wrong views. I've already mentioned them, but the idea that actions do not become good or evil or do not lead to good or evil. The wrong view that everything is cut off and comes to an end when you die. The idea that no further existence will occur after death and there are no good or evil results uh, that come from good or evil actions. And the wrong view that volitional action does not produce good or evil results. The idea that happiness and suffering arise by themselves without causes. Inborn deficiency refers to uh, uh, inborn deficiency in spiritual intellect. You can, uh, this is only an obstacle to path knowledge and fruition knowledge and not to celestial rebirth. Insulting a noble one refers to an act of insulting or degrading a noble one. So if you were to insult an arahat, you would not be able to be enlightened, but you could uh, remove that obstacle by apologizing. Um, Knowingly uh, violating the uh, monastic code. All right. And then, of course, not practicing is the other one. How do you know what the right amount of practice is? How much of your time, energy, and resources do you give to practice? Is this uh, ultimate goal of liberation the thing that you're here for anyway? These are all questions. Um, that it's it's useful to think about because we are always allocating our time, energy, and resources. Uh, and uh, how do we do it? Um, who here uh, spent 20 hours watching Game of Thrones? <laughs> For instance. 20 hours. Does, did you match that with somewhere with 20 hours of practice? What does Mahasi say about that? Game of Thrones? Um, we haven't Very gotten to that chapter. <laughs> 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 what, what did he say? What does he say? Um, uh, um, actually, uh, Teknat Han has included this kind of media in his precepts. Right? And he, he includes it under right speech. That are you uh, observing right speech when you uh, use media? Distraction is a is a one of the main strategies that our culture uses to emotionally regulate. They they distract you from what's really. I, I think that in this election cycle they've done it incredibly well. Um, uh, I I almost never hear a substantive broadcast on either of the candidates I never hear anything about issues I never hear anything about the actual nature of the country I just hear that Donald Trump has threatened uh, has 
advocated his supporters to kill Hillary Clinton <laughs> by shooting them with their guns to demonstrate their Second Amendment rights. Um, and I, I think to myself, look over here, look over here, we're stealing all your money. Don't look over here where we're stealing all your money. Look over here where it doesn't matter at all. <clears throat> You become dysregulated by practice, Chapman's, um, and and co-regulation is possible at that point. Then I would say that you're in the category that needs to be guided. <laughs> <laughs> and that you should seek out then a teacher or somebody to help with the practice. The practice can often be dysregulating. I'm going to shut up about that. Uh, the practice can often be dysregulating, and so you want to organize your practice in such a way that you can continue to practice and cool down the body-mind, uh, and then once the body-mind is cooled down, go back into the, the... It's typically the Vipassana side that stirs things up. So you're saying you use metta instead of being a Yes, that's what I'm saying. If practice is disrupting and <coughs> metta doesn't work, uh, I, I'm not averse to skillful distraction but then we would have to, to go through a process of examination whether, the, whether Game of Thrones is something that we could call skillful distraction uh, I, but you know media is, is a, a distraction if, if shooting heroin or watching Game of Thrones was the choice on the table then I might be actually be saying watch Game of Thrones and don't shoot heroin right if smoking crystal was one choice for distraction uh, and watching Mr. Robot was another choice uh, maybe Mr. Robot is actually a better one of those choices um we have to undertake the practice to change our conditioning and it, it isn't something that just we decide to do if you you can learn cognitively very quickly uh, a better solution to your conditioning but it's really only available to you if you're not stressed if you're stressed you don't have all of those cognitive choices available to you. What you have is your conditioning. And you don't have a choice about regulating. And if uh, you're so stressed that you can't think clearly how to do it, your mind will simply take the tool that you've currently got installed for it and use that to regulate yourself. Um, and uh, if that's something that, that is self-destructive, you will engage in the self-destruction and it will appear to you that it's a reasonable amount of self-destruction to engage in because you're in so much distress and that you can get from this level of stress, distress to this level of distress with only a wee amount of self-destruction and in the moment that you make that choice it seems like a good deal. I'm going to relieve my pain when you're out of the pain, of course, and your pain level is down here and, and the, the self-destructive level is up here, it doesn't look so good. And then you have this huge wave of difficult emotion when you recognize uh, 
that the deal you made was so bad. But that can put you in so much pain that the deal suddenly looks pretty good again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you take it again. Boom, you're down here and you're looking up. This time it's a double helping. Mm. And then all of a sudden you can't look at all because it's too painful. And depending on your conditioning, often things like that happen. As children, of course, we're, we're much less capable of doing this. And so all of those things can heap up. And then there's this big pool of terrible sadness that we can't go anywhere near. And so we construct this elaborate uh, defensing strategy around it. So we never have to touch into it. And then we start meditating and then we can see the whole thing. And then again, need to be in touch with the terrible sadness. The good news, however, is if you can just be in the terrible sadness, that whole structure that you've built that keeps you protected from it just falls away because you don't need it anymore. And you can just be there. And then actually what you can do is release uh, you know, a lifetime's gathering of unresolved sadness and be free of it. And and the big bonus there is that uh, there's so much energy then available to do now that was tied up in holding the terrible sadness uh, that it's just enlivening to do it. Although it is a grind to do it. So this process of, of bearing down and backing off is really important. If you can, um, one of the reasons that I like metta as a concentration practice so much is if you learn to do it well, you can totally withdraw into this space of coolness, of kindness, and stay there. And all of that stuff can just be raging out there. And you're in this place of, of safety and kindness. And then when you've recalibrated, when you've rebalanced, you can go back out into the chaos and begin to dismantle it again. And then if it becomes too much, you can pull back into the the, the metta and rebalance, come into kindness and then go back out. So it isn't a, a bypass or an escape. It's a, it's a skillful means of actually being able to go. And if you have the confidence that whenever you need to pull out of the difficulty that you have a place where you can go and reside in this, this uh, kindness, then it makes you pretty fearless in, in going ahead and doing the deep Vipassana work. But if you think that you can go into Vipassana and get so dysregulated that you won't be able to function, it makes you actually pretty timid in going forward. I record these classes and I put them into a Dropbox. And we're going to be going through the Manual of Insight in the way that we've been going. Uh, it's probably going to take about 18 months or so to get through. So. Um, you may not be able to come to all of the classes, but if you wanted to keep up, the Dropbox is a good way to do it. And in order for you to be invited to it, I need to have your your name and email address. Anybody want to? And then just pass it along if someone else wants it. Did you find somebody that you could bring to mind and with them the mind state of mental pretty well? So just make a short list in your mind of people that you can do that with so that when you notice the mind is angry, grab one out and put them in the mind and do some practice so that you can bring the mind state back into a place of kindness. 
so that you don't have to be subject to afflictive emotions in the same way that you were before discovering and, and developing this practice. Really useful. All right. So this is deepening your practice. So I'm always going to be advocating ways for you to deepen your practice. Uh, one of the ways to do that is to go on retreat. And the way that works is you make up your mind which retreat you're going to go on, you sign up for it, you pay for it, and then you tell everyone you know that you're going on this retreat so that you don't back out at the last moment. Um, the next retreats that we have coming up uh, are the Labor Day retreat. Uh, at um, I guess it's a Labor Day retreat. Um, I think it's, is it in September or October? September? September. Out in Joshua Tree, uh, Dave Smith, uh, uh, Cheryl Sleen, and Mary Stancavage are leading that retreat. Um, this winter, I'm doing a retreat up at La Casa de Maria in Montecito. Um, the retreat that Dave uh, and uh, Cheryl and uh, Mary are doing is a, a, a Four Foundations retreat. So it's a it's a uh, retreat that's very typical in the Theravada world. You go through the four foundations of mindfulness uh, that are described in the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, the retreats that I do are called Meaningful Life Retreats, and the curriculum is a little different than than this. The uh, um, the Four Foundations Retreat. I teach Metta Vipassana, so there's there's always a Metta component in in the retreats that I do. Um, where the typical uh, structure of those retreats was to do concentration and insight in the morning and afternoon and then met in the evening but on the last retreat we just tried altering that so that we're doing uh, four or five days of straight metta in the beginning of the retreat and then the, the rest of the retreat is uh, uh, insight practice and actually it works so well that this uh, winter retreat, the first part of the retreat will be all metta and the second part of the retreat will be vipassana. Um, in addition to the, the four foundations of mindfulness on the Meaningful Life retreats, I also teach uh, a relational mindfulness practice that's based on John Bowlby's attachment theory. So we describe the different attachment strategies that our conditioning leads us to, and then we work with them as mind states, identifying them as mind states, so that you can be aware of when your attachment strategy is activated. Attachment is, is one of the ways in which we as human beings regulate the experience of abandonment terror. And, uh, or I should just say abandonment. We're very sensitive to abandonment as human beings because uh, when we're young, if we don't have the care of our uh, people, we don't really survive very well. And so we're hyper. It's an evolutionary mechanism that's built in. And so we all have this thing, and it, it becomes a view that takes over uh, whenever we have the perception of the possibility of abandonment, which is actually a pretty routine experience. So it's very useful to be able to detect the mind state when it's present or not because it has a tendency to affect our actions, the intention and the action that we take, which we know can turn into either good or evil out in the world. Um, so uh, I, th I find it a very useful way to practice and that tends to be what I do on retreat. Um, 
that retreat is uh, for 11 nights. It starts on December 27th. In January, Joanna Harper and Mary Stan Cabbage are doing a women's only retreat in Joshua Tree. So if you want to go out and retreat with them. Uh, and then I'm assuming that our retreat schedule for next year will be much the same, starting with the Memorial Day retreat here. But we, we're, we haven't gotten that far. Um, another way to uh, practice deeply is by uh, practicing intensely as a householder. And so I have two classes starting in September. One is called the Meaningful Life, which is a nine-month intensive. So you have two uh, classes a month. These are closed classes, so you're always meeting with the same cohort of students. You have two one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions with a, a meditation mentor uh, to to be able to talk to them. So we went through the, the three kinds of peop people and the three kinds of practice. This is all oriented toward people who need to be guided. and So it's nice to have a meditation mentor available to you so that you can ask questions, make sure that you're practicing in a way that's useful, and then to go into the actual uh, conditioning that you have and, and so that the, the practice that you do can be very skillful in unwinding and if it needs to be unwound. And then six mornings a week of guided meditation, you need to be practicing in order to have meditation affect the way that uh, you operate in the world and so that ensures the practice. The Meaningful Life is oriented around relationships, so how do you show up in relationships, what do you expect of other people in relationships, and how you can move that to a place of more security in relationships. The great advantage of being secure in your relationships is it frees you up to explore what's meaningful in your life. If you feel insecure in relationships, it's a great inhibitor to exploring the things that make your life seem meaningful, so this is uh, very useful, particularly for householders. You know, monastics, the first thing that they do is they sever all ties outside of the monastery, but none of us are really going to be doing that anytime soon, I hope. Um, the second class is called Meditation Interventions for the Addiction Process, and it adds on top of the Meaningful Life curriculum Alan Marlat's Relapse Prevention uh, uh, System. So the, the interventions class is focused on people who have substance or process addictions as a way of, of developing meditation strategies that can ensure long-term uh, abstinence or harm reduction. Very useful as well. So take a look at those. I think the flyers are out there. Um, I do offer morning meditation, which is a six mornings a week guided meditation that happens at 7.30 in the morning. That's also very useful in supporting your practice. If you can't call in live, then it's also uh, podcast and recorded, so you can pick it up anytime during the day and use that as a, as a basis for your practice. Um, right now we're, we're looking at the, uh, the uh, progress of insight and going through the first five stages of the progress of insight. Um, there's a bunch of flyers out there for different classes and different teachers that are coming. It's really useful to find a teacher that you resonate with, one who you don't have to do a lot of transliteration with, who speaks to you in a way that you experience the world so that you can uh, um, feel connected and engaged in the practice. So um, take a look at that.
the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna is fifteen dollars. Uh, I'm an ardent supporter of having meditation centers to come to because vipassana practice, as Fred was saying, can be dysregulating, and it's useful to have other people who are practicing that you're in relationship with, so that when you need somebody to help you uh, co-regulate or come into balance around the practice, you have somebody that you can do that with. Uh, people who do not practice don't tend to know how to respond to you with your issues around practice. And uh, so having somebody who actually understands the language of practice is really useful. What better place to come and meet them and build these relationships than at a meditation center? Uh, we've been here for a long time. This meditation center has been here for a long time. How many? 25 years? You may have the impression that it's just going to stay here and that you don't have to do anything about it. But I can assure you that the finances of meditation centers are constantly precarious and that uh, that individual act of generosity that you make every time you come is vital for the lights to stay on and the doors to stay open. So we really appreciate that you do that. And this practice of generosity, we really undertake for ourselves. It's a, a way of opening. Uh, a lot of us have constriction around they're, they're not going to be enough. And so this is one of the ways to begin to open into the, the, the conditions of life. So we should be giving at a level that's meaningful to us. Uh, for some of us, $15 actually has meaning. Uh, for some of us, we're so resourced that actually $15 doesn't have a lot of meaning and we should be giving at a higher level. And for some of us, $15 is too much. And so we should be giving at a level there that's also meaningful to us and that we can manage. Uh, we take cash and cards out there. If you'd also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. And we'll see you next week. <coughs>